Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? So here in the United States... We are observing Memorial Day today. And on this day, the United States honors the memory of U.S. military personnel who died while serving. The subject of our episode today was in the United States military. She even rose to the rank of Rear Admiral in the United States Navy. However, she did not die while in service. So I want to make clear that this episode is not to dismiss the countless people who have given their lives in service to the United States military, but rather to remember someone who made enormous contributions to technology, uh, particularly while a member of the U.S. military. And we also associate her with a story that usually gets told incorrectly. In fact, I've been guilty of telling it incorrectly myself in the past. The person I'm talking about is, of course, Grace Hopper, who sometimes gets the affectionate nickname Grandma Cobol. Uh, note, I said Cobol. Uh, C-O-B-O-L. 
at not kobold, as in the nasty little critters in Dungeons and Dragons. Grace Hopper was born in 1906 in New York City to a well-off family. Her father, a Yale graduate, owned an insurance company, and she grew up not wanting for anything, really. She attended private schools, and she matriculated at Vassar. She focused her studies on science, specifically in physics, and in mathematics. She graduated Vassar in 1928, and then she followed in her father's footsteps. She enrolled in Yale for graduate studies. In 1930, she earned her master's degree in mathematics. She continued her graduate studies and pursued a Ph.D. Around the same time, she also accepted a job to teach mathematics at her alma mater, Vassar. Her mentor during this time was a feller named Howard Ingstrom. He was just four years older than Hopper herself. So uh, just a quick word about Ingstrom. The story's not really about him, but we need to at least get an idea of who he was. And it is a bit important. While he was a mathematician, his actual degrees were in chemical engineering. And then he would go on to be one of the co-creators of the Univac computer. Now, keep in mind, at the time we're at right now with Grace Hopper's timeline, we're in the 1930s. The concept of an electromechanical computer is really just starting to become coherent around this time. There were people working on it, but these were very, very early days with the idea of an electromechanical computer. Now, there had been earlier examples of purely mechanical computational machines, like Babbage's Difference Engine, Babbage's Analytical Engine. Those were at least concepts that were uh, computational engines that used mechanical components to, to calculate things. Considering where Hopper's career would take her, Having a mentor who was an early contributor to computer science and design is meaningful, and they would have other encounters in the future. But back to Hopper herself. She had the opportunity to study with the German-American mathematician Richard Corrent, whose work in the field of applied mathematics was renowned, and she earned her PhD from Yale in 1934, and she earned it in mathematics and mathematical physics. So then we skip ahead a few years. On December 7th, 1941, Japanese forces bombed the U.S. base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. The United States, which had resisted entering into the conflict we would call World War II, found itself drawn into the conflict. And Hopper wanted to be part of the war effort, and she applied to become uh, enlisted in the Navy. However, the Navy rejected her, partly because Grace Hopper was of a petite build, diminutive in size, some would describe her, and also because at age 34 at this time, uh, the Navy considered her to be too old to join the effort. Nevertheless, she persisted, and Grace Hopper would end up joining the U.S. Naval Women's Reserve in 1943. So while she wasn't uh, an active member of the Navy, she was an active member of the Navy Reserves, and she received an assignment to work on the Bureau of Ships Computation Project at Harvard University. There, she worked with a Harvard graduate named Howard Eichen. When Eichen was a graduate student at Harvard, he lamented that his doctoral thesis relied upon complex calculations that were tedious to perform by hand. 
And so, like many innovators before him, he decided the best option was to find people he could work with to invent a device that could do those kinds of calculations automatically. So he was able to work with a a relatively young company called International Business Machines, better known today as just IBM, and together they would be able to bring his wish into reality. So uh, Iken would kind of act as the director, or at least the the guide officer, like he's guiding the development of this machine to perform these calculations automatically. The result was a device called the Automatic Sequence Controlled Calculator, ASCC, but later and better known as just the Harvard Mark I. So Hopper joined the Bureau of Ships right around the time that the Mark I had been shipped to Harvard from IBM. So the Mark I didn't look anything like a modern computer does. It was an electromechanical device. It had moving parts. Like there were shafts that would turn and gears that would turn and all sorts of stuff. Like it was it was a, a, a real machine. And it also had electrical parts, right? There were electrical switches, there were various relays, and there were miles and miles of cables, something like 500 miles. It was, you know, I've seen different estimates, but yes, hundreds of miles of cables connecting all these different components. The whole thing collectively weighed more than four tons. Uh, If you were to look at the deal and get a tape measure out, it was about 51 feet long. It was eight feet tall and then two feet deep, right? So like, or you might want to think of it as like 51 feet <laughs> wide, eight feet tall, and then two feet deep, something like that. That's a definitely not a desktop computer unless you have a truly ginormous desk. This computer could store a few dozen numbers and you could actually then use those numbers for multiple calculations. So that was useful, right? Right. You didn't have to insert the same number every time you wanted to do a different calculation. You could actually store a number in this device. Uh, in fact, more than 70 numbers at a time. And I think it was something like it was more than 20 decimal points or or decimal digits that you could store in this uh, per number. The length of time it would take to generate an answer would depend upon the nature of the calculation. So simple operations like addition or subtraction would take you know around a second for this machine to perform. More complex mathematical functions could require a minute or more. But it was all automatic, Uh, at least it was once you input all the data, which you would do by using switches, lots and lots of switches. The Mark I had like more than a thousand switches in various switch banks. So you had to use all these in order to input the data you wanted to uh, then operate upon. Now, to tell the computer what you wanted done to the input, remember, input's just one thing. You also have to instruct the computer what operation to perform. Well, to do that, you would use a program. And in those days, a program consisted of, you know, punch cards in some cases. But in the case of the Mark I, it was uh, essentially paper tape that had holes punched into it. And you would feed the tape through the computer. And those holes would allow for specific connections within the computer And in turn, that served as instructions for the computer. It would perform a specific operation depending upon which contacts allowed 
to go through. So for programming a computer meant physically punching holes in cards or in tape. And Grace Hopper would be one of the first three people to do this. So she was one of the first three computer programmers for the Harvard Mark I computer. Now, she wasn't just a programmer. She never was just a programmer. She was also an instructor. Remember, she had come from a background of teaching. She taught at Vassar before she joined the Navy Reserves. So it became her job to write a user manual for the Mark I. The story goes that Iken initially didn't want to give Hopper very much responsibility because he mistakenly believed that due to the fact she was a woman, she would be limited in that capacity. And then Hopper proved him wrong. And so then he said, all right, you know what? You know what you're doing. Write the instruction manual for the Mark I. Now, as you might imagine, the complexity of the Mark I required a pretty long instruction manual. Uh, from what I understand, the manual had more than 550 pages of instructions. Yikes. Now, keep in mind, again, it's an electromechanical system. Really complicated, literally lots of moving parts, which means there's lots of potential points of failure. So it makes sense that any comprehensive manual would need to be long. But can you imagine being put in charge of writing a comprehensive instruction manual for such a complicated machine? She did it. And she would work on various projects that would contribute either directly or indirectly to the war effort. So the lab she worked in, the, the calculations they were performing using this computer, they were for all sorts of things, including things like like uh, numbers tables for stuff like rocket trajectories or specific types of artillery so that soldiers in the field would have a reference and they would know what settings to use when they were targeting enemies, right? Like you, you know where the enemy is or you're told where the enemy is in relation to where you are. You have to actually make the calculations of how to position, say, a, a piece of artillery, how to position the, the gun barrel so that when you fire, you're actually going to hit that target and not something else, right? Like you don't want to end up hitting a civilian uh, building. You're aiming at a military uh, unit or, or, or structure or something like that. You need these tables so that you understand based upon the equipment you're using and the, uh, the, the firepower behind it, that you are actually going to hit the thing you're aiming at. That's the kind of calculations that Hopper's team was working on. Uh, and some of the work that was done with the Harvard Mark one would also end up being used by the Manhattan project. That was the top secret mission to develop the atomic bomb. They also would de depend upon calculations made by the Mark one. Now at the conclusion of world war two, Hopper would choose to stay with Harvard. She was given the opportunity to go back to Vassar, but she decided she would stick with Harvard and work on computer systems. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk more about the contributions Grace Hopper made to computing. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. 
Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. So, as I mentioned before the break, after World War II, Grace Hopper decided that she was going to stay at Harvard. At least, briefly, she would stay there. So, she was an intrinsic part of the team that developed the Mark II, the successor of the Mark I. So, uh, a more complicated and sophisticated computer. She also worked on the design of the Mark III, which obviously followed the Mark II. And at this point, Harvard was still receiving support from the U.S. Navy, which had a vested interest in having access to sophisticated computational machines. Around this time, we get to a story that has been mangled quite a bit in the past. In in fact, even Yale's own page about Grace Hopper appears to have a mistake in it, because the Yale page says that this incident that that we're about to talk about happened in 1945. But according to other sources that talk about the actual logbook that recounts this event, it happened on a specific day two years later, on September 9th, 1947. So again, 
this is a story that has been told and retold many times. And uh, a lot of those retellings are inaccurate, probably not intentionally inaccurate, but it just has happened. And, and like I said, in the past, I've repeated some of those inaccuracies. So I'm going to try to be as careful as I can to recount what actually happened keeping in mind that this story has been told so many times that it's very possible that there is no hundred percent accurate version of the story, but here's how it goes. So the Mark II team at Harvard were running into problems. The Mark II computer was producing error after error, and it was doing so consistently. So there was something wrong and it didn't matter how many times they ran the calculation through, they were getting the same errors at the other side, which meant something somewhere in the computer system was hinky. I mean, maybe a connection was loose. Maybe a wire had broken. Like there was no way to know unless you cracked the sucker open and really took a look. So that's what Hopper's team did. They began to look through the Mark II computer to see what was going on. Where was this problem actually occurring? Then they found it. A moth had been trapped inside the Mark II computer and it got zapped in a relay and thus it was blocking a signal, right? The the relay could not relay signals because there was a, a dead moth in the way. So they removed the X insect and they actually taped it into the logbook they were keeping where they were, you know, they would write down whenever they had errors, you know, they would log them so that they could... Uh, work the errors out. So they taped the dead moth into the logbook and they included the amusing note of, quote, first actual case of bug being found, end quote. So the shorthand for this story is that Grace Hopper invented the term bug when it comes to a problem that's in a computer program or even in a computer system. But that's not entirely accurate. So the term bug, meaning something is is going wrong inside a mechanical or electrical system, something is creating errors that predates the 1947 incident. That was a term that was already in use in various engineering circles. Uh, and and that makes sense. Like it has to have already existed or else that log entry doesn't make sense. Right. The log entry was first actual case of a bug being found. So that implies that the term bug was already being used to describe errors. It's just that in this particular case, the bug was a literal bug. So a lot of historical accounts now say Grace Hopper was the first to apply the term bug to a problem within a computer system, not just an electrical system or, or mechanical system, but a computer system itself. And effectively, she coined the phrase computer bug. That's possibly true. It's at least more accurate than just saying she coined the phrase bug because that's not true. Uh, also, we should mention that it's really her team. Like to this day, there's a little bit of confusion of who first made the joke about it being a bug. She also gets the credit for the term debugging. And initially that makes sense because her team literally had to debug a computer system by removing the moth from the relay. However, the the term debugging was already being used in other circles as well. In fact, it appears in a 1944 letter 
that J. Robert Oppenheimer wrote to Ernest Lawrence, for example. That happened three years before the Great Moth incident in the Mark II computer. So debugging was already a thing, too. You could argue maybe she was the first to use debugging in relation to a computer system, and maybe she was, or at least her team was. Now, as far as I can tell, Grace Hopper never claimed that she or her team coined the terms computer bug or debugging, that this was something of a narrative that developed around her, but she was not responsible for it. She never made those claims. Now, I think it might be because the actual story of a real bug causing problems in a computer is so amusing that folks want it to be the origin story for the term itself, right? Because it's such a good story. Wouldn't that be awesome if that's why we say computer bug? And it's still a great story. Like, it's fantastic. And it really did happen to Grace Hopper's team. So not taking anything away from that. It's just that it's not where we get those phrases. It's just <laughs> it's just an amusing example of it being literal in this sense. Now, we're not done with Grace Hopper, not by a long shot, because her contributions went far beyond a close encounter of the moth kind. That's just the amusing story folks like to tell that it relates to Grace Hopper's contributions in computer science. So Hopper faced professional challenges despite her impressive work to both the war effort during World War II and to computer programming in general. The Navy denied her a regular commission, so she decided to leave active service. She would remain a reservist until 1966. More on that when we get there. But she was no longer an active service member of the U.S. Navy at this point. Not long after she stepped down from active service with the Navy, she actually chose to leave Harvard as well because she had been denied tenure. And it also became obvious to her that she was not going to get promoted there, despite all the work she was doing, that she was just hitting a glass ceiling super hard and there was no real chance of her getting beyond it. So rather than bang her head and or accept her fate and and not get any further in her career, she decided in 1949, she left Harvard University and she went to join uh, a computer company, a fledgling computer company called the Eckert Mouchley Computer Corporation or EMCC. The following year, a typewriter company called Remington Rand would acquire EMCC. And this is where we're going to get into a very complicated history of a very important computer system. All right. So EMCC or Eckert Mouchley Computer Corporation had taken its name from its two founders, J. Presper Eckert and John Mouchley. Now, these two had built another early computer. This one was called the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, or ENIAC, at the University of Pennsylvania. ENIAC was also an important computer, or at least it was meant to be an compu important computer during World War II. The actual development and construction of ENIAC took quite a long time. But uh, ENIAC is one of those famous early electrical computers, or electronic computers, I should say. Now, following that achievement, the two men found themselves at a, a fundamental disagreement with the University of Pennsylvania 
over the matter of patent rights. And this led the pair to leave the University of Pennsylvania and then go and found their own company, thus EMCC. And EMCC designed a new computer called the Binary Automatic Computer, or BINAC, which is essentially just a footnote in history. Uh, There's very little about BINAC out there. It's possible that the machine was literally never used for anything. However, it did arguably leave the Bureau of the Census to then seek out EMCC to create a new computer design, which the company would refer to as UNIVAC. And Grace Hopper would join EMCC around this time and would be important in the work and development of UNIVAC, specifically in programming for the UNIVAC. But in the fall of 1949, the primary financial backer for EMCC died in a plane crash. So once their their financier essentially had died, uh, EMCC was kind of in financial trouble. They weren't sure whether they could last long enough to build out the UNIVAC. That's when Remington Rand came along and acquired EMCC. Remington Rand was really, like I said, a typewriter company. They made, you know, office uh, typewriters, but they saw the opportunity to get into the computer world by purchasing EMCC. However, there's always a bigger fish. So things are about to get way more complicated. I'll explain what I mean by that after we come back from this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. 
explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're up to 1951. Grace Hopper has been part of EMCC and then Remington Rand, which purchased EMCC for a few years. And that's when the company completed work on the first Univac computer. Uh, it would eventually be known as the Univac One, but at the time they just called it the Univac. Kind of like how in World War One people referred to it as the Great War, because if they had started calling it World War One while they were fighting it, that would have been, you know, very pessimistic. Calling Univac the Univac One would have been very optimistic. So they built the Univac, and unlike other computers, this was not a computer that was just meant to be a one and done. Like they they made multiple Univac One computer systems. The first one went to the United States Census Bureau because that's kind of where all this work got started. But the company made other ones for other clients, including CBS. Famously, CBS would use the Univac One to predict the outcome of the 1952 presidential election. But when they got the results, they didn't trust it because the Univac had said that Eisenhower was going to win handily, that it was going to be a landslide victory for Eisenhower. But the conventional wisdom at the time was that this was going to be a much closer presidential race. However, it would ultimately turn out that the Univac prediction was right. Like, not exactly right. They didn't get it to the very, you know, the very voter or anything like that. But it was way more correct than the guess that it was going to be a tight race. And that ended up really elevating uh, Univac's prestige because once CBS said, okay, well, it turns out our computer predicted a landslide. We just didn't believe it, but it turns out the computer was right. That's amazing press for your computer system, right? So Remington ran slash EMCC would continue to develop the Univac platform. And then Remington Rand uh made another acquisition. It acquired a competing computer company called Engineering Research Associates, or ERA. So Rand acquired ERA in 1952. Now, one of ERA's founders was Hopper's old mathematics mentor, Howard Ingstrom. Rand effectively ran EMCC and ERA as separate entities, right? So while both companies were under the corporate umbrella of Remington Rand, they still were kind of competing against each other. They were making different computer designs. That, however, would change in 1955. I told you this gets complicated. So in 1955, Rand merged with another company called Sperry, S-P-E-R-R-Y. And then the new company was known as Sperry Rand. Now, at this point, EMCC and ERA divisions would be merged together to form a new division called Sperry Univac. 
one of the folks at ERA really didn't like that because it meant that ERA had to drop a lot of the work it had been pursuing. Uh, this guy was known as Seymour Cray. He left the Sperry Rand company and decided to make his own computer company. It's called Cray Computers. That's another story. It might mean something to you if you know the names of old supercomputer systems. But yeah, uh, we'll have to tell the story of Cray Computers in another episode. So anyway, at this point, the head of the division that uh, was Sperry Univac was a guy named Leslie Groves. Now, Groves had been an officer with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He was actually in charge of the construction of the Pentagon back in the 1940s. Uh, he also served as the military's director for the Manhattan Project, and he went on to oversee the early days of what would become the United States nuclear weapons program. But he had also reached an impasse with the U.S. government. He was told outright he was never going to get the appointment he wanted. And in the late 1940s, he decided to leave military service. Uh, he received the rank of lieutenant general just before he retired and then he entered civilian life and he joined Sperry and became a vice president of that company. Uh, so I mentioned that again because this episode goes out on Memorial Day and Sperry Rand, this, this computer company, had a really healthy representation of former armed forces personnel working as engineers there. In fact, this was not unusual across computer companies of the time that the engineers who were at the forefront of the United States development of computers were people who had previously worked in that uh, respect for the armed forces. Now, as I said, Hopper was involved with the work on UNIVAC primarily from a programming side, and her team would create something that would push computer science in general and computer programming in particular into a new era and to make it way more accessible for new programmers. And this was the first compiler. All right, so I've talked in the past about how machines do not understand languages the way we do. So when you get down to the basic operational level, machines don't understand human language, right? Like you can have a conversation with ChatGPT and the appearance is that the machine understands what you're saying. But this is actually after several layers of abstraction. When you strip it all away, machines understand machine code. Typically, we're talking about binary code. So that means at the basic level of computing, you're dealing with zeros and ones. Machines can process this information efficiently, but it's not easy for humans to work with that. Now, early programming languages were really mathematical codes and were very, very close to getting to machine code itself. Grace Hopper had this dream of making a system where humans could write instructions for computers in a more easily accessible language, something that was closer to a language like English. Now, a lot of her contemporaries dismissed this as just wishful thinking. Like, yes, it would be nice if you could program in a language closer to English, but it would also be nice if I had my own private plane and could fly anywhere I wanted to any time of day. It's just a pipe dream. How can you bridge the gap between what humans find easy to do when it comes to communication and what machines are capable of? And Hopper's team got to work on creating a solution. Now, that solution came in two important parts. One, 
is programming language. Now, programming language creates a level of abstraction from machine code to make programming less of an arduous task. But not all programming languages are alike. A low-level programming language is really just a few degrees separation from machine code itself. It's still pretty challenging to learn. It is uh, a slog to really get a, a, a firm grasp on how to program, which in turn means you can be really limited in what you can do, right? That, that you have the potential to do much more interesting programming, but you have a limitation because the language itself is so difficult to work with. A high-level programming language has more layers of abstraction, so it makes it easier for humans to grasp and to work with, and you're also less likely to introduce bugs, like, like programming bugs. Obviously, that still happens, but it's slightly easier to avoid. But to make a programming language useful, you have to have a way to translate those instructions from the more human-friendly programming language to the useful machine code that the computer system actually relies upon. To that end, Hopper's team built the first compiler, and the compiler does pretty much what I just described. It takes code that's written in a programming language and compiles that into machine-readable instructions. The early programming languages, like I said, were essentially mathematical code, like Fortran is an example, very close to mathematical code. Hopper's team developed a programming language that began to approach something similar to English, and this was a huge step. It was a non-trivial development in the world of computer science. Hopper's team named the language Flowmatic. Unlike predecessors like Fortran, Flowmatic's use of English commands removed some of the barriers to programming. It was still a challenge to learn. It wasn't like the easiest thing in the world to work with, but the learning curve became way, way less harsh when you started to introduce this more English structure type of programming language. Flowmatic would essentially become the inspiration for a future programming language called Common Business Oriented Language, or COBOL, which we mentioned at the top of the show, or COBOL, if you prefer. And Hopper really liked COBOL, and she promoted it and worked on compilers for the COBOL language. And that helped make COBOL a widely used language in academia, in the private sector, in the military, and her work really made huge results. People would later attribute her promotion of COBOL as a, a major factor in the language's success, because by the 1970s, it would become the most commonly used programming language out there. And people say Grace Hopper's contributions were a large part of that. Now, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, Hopper was in the Navy Reserves until 1966. So she had left active service, but she had remained in the reserves for two decades until she was required to retire due to age restrictions. And she would reference her retirement from the Navy as the saddest day of her life. Her rank at the time was commander. And then seven months later, the Navy came back to her and said, um, Grace, could you help us out again? And after retiring as a reservist, Grace Hopper would rejoin the Navy as an active service member. Her responsibilities primarily included streamlining the Navy's approach to computers and to find a way to manage the multiple computer systems and computer languages that the Navy was reliant upon. Because by this time, the Navy had invested in multiple computer systems 
working with lots of different people who took different approaches. And it just became complicated and difficult to uh, coordinate projects because you had different systems working with very different computer languages. They were not inherently compatible. So Grace Hopper was there to try and make sense of it all and to make it more efficient and streamlined. She would spend nearly two more decades as an active service member of the Navy, and she got the nickname Amazing Grace. She also continued to work for UNIVAC until 1972. Throughout her career, she earned countless distinctions, way too many for me to list in this episode. Uh, At the age of 79, she finally retired from the Navy for realsies, uh, no take backs. By that point, she had attained the rank of Rear Admiral. And at that point, she was also the oldest active service member in U.S. military, which is pretty, pretty phenomenal. As I said, she got numerous uh, awards and and distinctions, uh, both while she was alive and posthumously. Uh, She has received awards from U.S. presidents, from various universities, from various professional associations, uh, an incredibly important person in the world of computer science. She lived until the ripe old age of 85. She passed away on New Year's Day, 1992, and was buried in Arlington Cemetery with full military honors. So truly a phenomenal figure in the history of computer science and a testament to what you can achieve when you have ambition and you have skill and talent and you have dedication to your craft, a a phenomenal life's story. And so uh, I am glad to have dedicated an episode to Grace Hopper. I hope all of you out there are well I hope those of you who are observing Memorial Day uh, have a peaceful day of reflection, and I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.